Hi, I'm Stacey Shumaker-Rowan, Editor-in-Chief of Hospitality Design Magazine with HD's What I've Learned podcast. Today, I sat down with President and CEO of EDG, Jennifer Johansson. An unabashed free spirit hailing from Texas, she walks me through her unplanned entry into the hospitality world, her evolved managing style thanks to COVID, the importance of collaboration, what she loves about restaurants versus hotels, and her secrets to success with a matter-of-fact approach I find inspiring. Our conversation spans her illustrious career, from her search on the San Francisco waterfront for a job to her instant classic, the Andal Scottsdale. Later this year, we also have the honor of inducting Jennifer into HD's Platinum Circle. So hi, I'm here with Jennifer. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me today. It's so good to see you. I'm super excited, Stacey. Great to see you too. So we always start at the beginning here. Um, Where did you grow up? Well, I see I was born in Los Angeles and my dad was in medical school and then he got drafted and we lived in North Carolina. Then we moved back to Minnesota and then we moved to Texas. So I've kind of been in all four corners, Uh, but I mostly grew up in Texas. Where in Texas? Both Dallas and San Antonio. Oh, nice. I consider San Antonio my hometown. And did you always have a love for design or hospitality from an early age? My mom is like Martha Stewart. I mean, she's a big entertainer. My dad was a doctor. My mom entertained all the time for the medical school. And uh, we, re- we moved so many times. My parents were big, um, arch- big believers in real estate. So we, mo- we moved a lot and always to old houses and always renovated them. And uh, as we got older, my mom let us have more of a hand in helping with the renovation. And I remember spending you know, days at wallpaper places with her and picking up colors and things like that. And then my mom just loved to do parties and entertain. And, you know, we were involved in all that. So I think I definitely grew up like in a hospitality family. Nice. And now do you like to entertain? I love entertaining. I love cooking. I love having friends over. I'd say our house is kind of the headquarters we have a huge dress up. We, of course, we haven't been able to do it this last year, but we have a huge theme New Year's party every year. And then um, we do all the holidays at our house. And so we love entertaining. Yeah. That's probably been the biggest problem with COVID for us. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Sure. It's like you just want to be able to have friends <laughs> yeah. at your home. Yeah. Seems absolutely. Something that was so natural is now. So foreign. Um, were there any travel, you know, memories or any other kind of early design um, moments that stick out in your mind? Totally. I mean, you know, it's funny because well, I've been in all 50 states now. I just started oh. a project in Alaska. So I'm very excited. I checked that box recently. But um, we would do these huge driving trips every summer and spend like three weeks on the road and we'd map them out for days before the internet. And um, you know, criteria for us as kids for awesome stay was a swimming pool. And that's it. You know, just like, hey, if we could see the swimming pool from the parking lot, we were already in our bathing suits before my dad could even check in. So we didn't have a very high bar. But my dad was the president of the American Medical Association one year and was doing an event in Boston. And our trip culminated at, in Boston and we stayed at the Copley Plaza Hotel. And I remember when we drove up, I was like, fussing with my dad like where is the pool like this uh, you know I can't see the pool and he's like well you're embarrassing us let's just get in 
and we walked in and it was just this gorgeous hotel, you know, with just all these antiques and, you know, just, you know, all these big staircases everywhere. My parents had to go to a big dress up party that night and we got room service in the room and my sisters and I were hanging out in there and running around in the hallway in our pajamas and stuff. And I just thought, hotels, man, that is it. I'm done with motels. I'm into hotels now. You upgraded. I upgraded myself <laughs> that, that, that week. And um, just, I think that I just became fascinated. And I started traveling more with my parents then and um, went to Europe with them and went to, you know, came out to San Francisco, which is how I ended up out here. Cause I came with my parents for a business trip and, um, and got to stay always in some great places with them. And we stayed down on union square at the St. Francis hotel. And I had my own room and I'm like, I am going to live here. That's what I'm going to do. And I, you know, I, I think it was just, uh, you know, I just love that life. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> especially yeah. from a kid's perspective, it's very glamorous, right? With room exactly. service and, you know, the grand buildings and everything about it. I still feel that way. I mean, even though I travel constantly and certainly before COVID, just like almost like tiresomely. But when I get checked into a beautiful hotel and I get to my room and I'm like, I love it. No matter how many times I've been on the road. Yeah. And yeah. so did you end up going to school for design or architecture? I did. I, I, um, I have a degree in architecture from the University of Texas in Austin. And, um, and then I practiced architecture for a little bit. I did residential work for five or six years. And then I met Eric and, uh, and started doing hospitality. And, and then it just totally connected me with my, my childhood experiences, everything I was into. Yeah. I had a, um, a friend, the guy that I worked with when I did res- what well, you wanted to know how I ended up out here, but I worked for a while doing high rise design in, oh, wow. in Dallas, which is all that they were doing then in the mid eighties. And, um, I did not particularly love that at all. And then the eighties just kind of wiped out the Texas economy, you know, completely. Right. And I lost my job, I think four times in one year oh, my and, um, I would get laid off and then I would have a job before I would even get home from another guy that had gotten laid off like months earlier and started his own company. And I just, you know, just no one had any work. And so I ended up, a friend of mine called me one day and said, Hey, do you want to move somewhere? I'm like, yeah, let's go to San Francisco. That's, I already know I want to live there. So we came out here. She'd never even been. I got a job the next day with a guy on the waterfront that did residential work. And uh, it was the opposite. I would worked in a big 300-person firm, and now I was the only employee <laughs> working right on the waterfront in San Francisco, designing custom residences. It was a blast. That's and crazy. the thing that was cool is that that guy's wife taught cooking classes out yeah. of her house. They had renovated the kitchen. was fabulous. And she's this fabulous woman that was had grown up in France. Her parent, her father was English and her mother was from Mallorca and she was just very elegant. She had a degree from the Cordon Bleu and she just was this most amazing um, entertainer. I'm still close with her today. And we spent the night there and she asked me to go out in the garden and pick tomatoes, which I hated. (laughs) And I went out in the garden and I said, I've never even been in a food garden. I I grew up in Texas suburbs. Like I've never been in a food garden. And it just got me so connected with food and, right. and like just being at her house and learning really how to cook, it kind of primed me. And then when I started with Eric and we were doing restaurants, I just said, this is, 
this is it for me. I'm just, this is what I'm going to do. Okay. Going back. So did you guys just know where you're going to stay? Did you just jump in a car and drive to San Francisco? Like, I mean, yeah, we just hopped in a car and drove and we had no apartment. We had no jobs. We just got here. And a friend of ours was living here and she hooked us up to live with these guys that worked at a sailboard shop. These two Italians, Mauro and Roberto. And so we shared a bed. My friend and I shared a bed for three months. And uh, it's kind of stuff you just, kids just don't do anymore, I don't think. I mean, I had $500. That's it. And my parents were not going to help me and her parents were not going to help her. My parents went to Japan on a business trip. And and I said, well, I'm living in San Francisco when you get back. And they're kind of like, didn't really believe me. And when they got back, I went and met them at the airport. And I said, I live here and I already have a job. And it's only been two weeks. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just kind of stuff people can't afford to do anymore, especially in San Francisco. Exactly. But yeah, like we'd, it was uh, low tech. <laughs> and how did you find the job on the waterfront? Oh, super low tech. I was driving down the Embarcadero, which is the street on the waterfront. And the guy had a sign with his phone number on it. <laughs> and I said, I want to work on the waterfront. That's amazing. Stop the car. And I got, they wrote it down, went back to uh, my friend's apartment and called him. And, and he, he just like a one man guy. And yeah. I just, I finally said, look, I don't even have my resume or my portfolio. My mom's going to send it to me. And I was like, so unprofessional. <laughs> and, uh, I was 23 and, um, and he, he, I said, let me just at least come in and answer the phones for you, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I went in and met him and he hired me and I worked for him for six years. And then how, how did you meet Eric? And we're referencing Eric Engstrom, who, was the original founder of Eric Engstrom Design, which then became EDG, and we can talk about that. Um, But how did you meet Eric? So the guy that I worked for doing residential, he had a part-time accountant that would come in every, you know, twice a month. She was my age, and uh, and we just became friends. And the economy had started really slowing down now in California, finally, after five years. And she told me one day at lunch, she's like, you know, he doesn't have any money. He's paying you, like he's paying you out of his pocket. Like he's not making any money. And I said, that's probably not very good for him. And she said, what should I do? And she said, well, you could get a job with this other guy that I work for, Eric Engstrom, who um, his sister, her sister worked with him. And she said, I can set you up with an interview. And so I went and interviewed with Eric and I really loved him. And he said, yeah, why don't you come and work for us part-time, you know? And so I started working for him. I told the other guy, I'm just going to go try it out part-time till you get more work. You know, we'll see how it goes. I, as you can start to gather, I was not super ambitious. <laughs> I was just sort of like doing, I, I look at the 23, 24 year olds that work for me and I cannot even believe it, how hardworking they are and yeah. how dedicated and professional they are. And uh, I was not, I mean, I was hardworking, but hardworking for me was like staying till six thirty or something. And, right. you know, we just didn't work as hard as these guys do at all. And I didn't really wake up my kind of competitive sort of, uh, career planning probably for another five years. I'd say probably till I was like 28. Yeah. Yeah. And so you started working with Eric and yeah. what was that like? What kind of projects were you working on? Well, the thing that Eric was just so fun to work with. I mean, it's crazy. I, I, he's like an old hippie. You know, we'd sit there and he would be listening to Velvet Underground, you know, and smoking his little cigarettes, which of course was 
not what he should have been doing, but, um, you know, drawing and, you know, he was drafting and drawing and, you know, just sitting kind of side by side with me. It felt very much like a studio environment again, um, which I loved. And we would just talk about, you know, his hippie days and music and it, it was just so fun but we were doing restaurants that's all we did we designed restaurants and um we worked in you know freestanding restaurants restaurants in casinos they really weren't putting restaurants in hotels yet that really hadn't happened um there was, is, those were kind of boring yeah which is crazy to think about i know it's changed so much <laughs> yeah and most of what we did was freestanding restaurants you know, and um, working with cool chefs and, you know, Eric was, I, I learned a lot from him. He was very, um, he's kind of a shy person, but he was very promotional. He really did know how to work it, you know, work the system. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I, you know, I met you through Eric yeah. and, you know, very, you know, working with all the work he did to legitimize the career of, of interior design. Um, with his work with interior, with IIDA. Yep. He was very much an activist, always. He was one of my first interviews 20, almost 20 years ago, uh, which is crazy to say. Um, And just his kindness and his generosity. And, you know, I, you know, had a master's in journalism and one previous job in interior design, you know, covering interior design. But I, was learning and he's like, let me help you learn. And here's who you should talk to. And this is what you should know. And this is what you should research. And let me connect you to so-and-so. I mean, just, you know, it was just Eric. It was, it was amazing. That's exactly it. He was just that way. He was a great connector. He was very selfless in that way. And, uh, you know, we just became super close friends. And then after, um, being there, maybe for three or four years, you know, he's like, let's start talking about the next generation of, of uh, Ingstrom design group, which was what it was called then. And I'm like, you know, what are you talking about? And he, <laughs> I mean, I'm leaving at five 30. Remember, you know, <laughs> my day's so, almost done. <laughs> yeah. The day's almost up. But I can't, what are you talking about more? Um, and so he, he made this other gal and I vice president's, of Ingstrom Design Group and brought in a, a management consultant to talk about next generation investment in the firm and all that. And we had three people. And uh, I was like, I guess, I mean, we'll do a retreat to Calistoga and Napa and, you know, all this stuff and do all this planning. And it was, uh, I mean, that it, it happened. We did it. And 20 years later, he retired and I took over and that's, that was the plan and, and it happened. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. So, you know, I guess I don't know if it's just because I'm not that ambitious or what, but I just kind of got there and was like, hey, I'm just going to stay here. Or he saw something in you that maybe you didn't see in yourself at that time. That's right. I think so. (laughs) And tell us about the firm now. How, you know, how big are you guys? You know, talk to us, talk to everyone listening about, you know, the cool new office space you created and, you know, what you have a testament to you have created over the last five, 10 years. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you were talking to me a year plus ago, it would be different answers. So the last year has been, you know, different for all of us. So I don't even know how big we are now. I keep losing track. Um, you know, we have our main office here in the hangar and then we've got an office in Singapore and a little office in Dallas. And 
I'd say overall we're about 60 people right now. Um, the hangar is amazing because it really gave us the ability to work the way we always wanted to work, which is collaboratively. And, uh, you know, we're, we're definitely, and I think that's something we inherited from Eric. We're the Royal we all the time. It's definitely not me. It's not, I, I struggle with that, you know, ever saying that. And, uh, um, like I try to encourage my team to be very inclusive from that standpoint. It's not about like one point of view. And uh, I think our clients like working with us because we do that. We, we kind of come into their circle and become part of their sort of trust ring. And um, that's just what we like to do. That's how we like to be. And uh, now we have all this space to be able to do it. So we have all these workrooms where people can kind of set up headquarters for a few weeks. And that would be the room that they would work out of and their whole team would be there. They could leave all their stuff there rather than having to have it hoarding around their desks and um, huge volume. So we can pin up stuff. I mean, we did a presentation and we brought the entire pool deck furniture to the presentation. So the umbrellas, everything. And uh, people were just like, wow, we could build our model room in here. Yeah. yeah <laughs> um, <I guess> <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's just great to be, I mean, we're in Marin County, which is kind of suburban and people are always like, why are you in Marin? Not in San Francisco. And I'm like, well, we're paying two fifty a foot in rent starting with that versus yeah. 80. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. uh, we have 18,000 square feet, you know, so it's, um, we like having that kind of space being connected to nature. We're right on a bird preserve right on the water. Oh, wow. Because they ripped out the runways and they flooded it back to the bay. Oh, so cool. So it's just really nice. You got to come yeah. out and see it. I know. I will. One of these days. <laughs> when we start traveling again, I will. Yeah. And so how has the firm evolved? I know, you know, you started off in restaurants and now you guys do so much more than just restaurants. So how did you grow the firm? How did you decide to take it in a different direction? Was it just one client after another? Was it, you know... Uh, a, a plan that you had or, you know, was it more kind of good happenstance? I'd love to take credit for having a plan, but I think you're starting to get the idea. I'm much more of an impetuous, impulsive person that follows a lead that shows up and yeah. makes it happen. But I'm not, uh, despite the fact that we make our living selling strategy, I'm not that strategic in my personal career, but, um, we did a few smart things and I think it's just indicative of who we are and how we work. But be, when we did the restaurant design, we really got into doing them from a strong narrative approach. Mm -hmm. So really coming up with a strong concept, strong narrative for the food, for the, um, the design. And because we did that so completely and we did it in so many arenas, you know, freestanding, small and large in campuses and, you know, casinos and then in hotels, we started understanding all the factors that contributed to the success of a food venue right. and um, really started understanding food and beverage and how important it was that it work. It's kind of like a machine that has to work, but it has to feel like a really great customer experience. And um, we just went to school on that and really learned it. And we also learned the economics of it and, and how to really make it work. So, I'd say that we're like being in the restaurant business without actually having to own a restaurant. And um, that really helped. And, and one of the pivotal projects that we did, we did a lot of work for Wolfgang Puck. Right. 
over the years. And one of the pivotal projects we did was um, Spago in Maui at the Four Seasons. And it was one of the first times that Four Seasons had brought in an outside chef. And it was Wolfgang's first restaurant in Hawaii. He already had a strong market, obviously, in Los Angeles. And um, the restaurant was just so successful. It was just hugely successful. And I think it was the most profitable restaurant in Four Seasons' entire company for many years. And it got the attention of Izzy Sharp, who you know, called me to talk to me about it. Like, how did you do this? What do you do? And I'm like, well, this is a, this is a, a you know, a chef, famous chef. They, they gave us the opportunity to do um, a renovation to their um, restaurant in Vancouver, which was one of the few properties that they owned. And, um, and we totally did the uh, renovation. We strategically did a lot of moves, like closed a, a ballroom area, closed a fine dining restaurant, consolidated everything in one did all these big things and the restaurant was hugely popular still there, even though they no longer own that hotel. And the, the, per, the percent in, uh, increase was a thousand percent profit increase um, wow. the next year, which was amazing because it was a combination of labor costs reduction as well as sales increase, et cetera. Right. And then that launched us doing probably 40 something restaurants for four seasons over the next 10 years and all over the world. So in 2008 and nine, when the whole economy was in the tank, we were doing tons of projects internationally and that led to us opening up our Singapore office. So, you know, I think one thing does lead to another. I think because we started working in hotels and doing so many restaurants in hotels, that led to us eventually doing hotels because our clients were like, well, we love working with you guys. You guys are great. You're strategic. Da, da, da. Why don't you, can you just do the whole public area? Right. And then you know, once we finally, Onda's was one of the first hotels where we were doing that for a client. And he said, can you just do the whole hotel? I'm like, sure. I mean, this would be a great hotel for us to try. Right. And now I'd say we do 75% of our work is whole hotels. Yeah. And then because of that, and because we did this strong narrative approach, we said, you know what, we should do branding. We should do our own branding and strategy because we already do. And we didn't realize that we were supposed to call it branding. (laughs) And and so then we brought on, you know, branding people and brought, fattened out our team. And and then we brought on a whole graphics um, department and all that so that we can do that as well. And so, yeah, definitely one thing kind of led to another. It was not a big giant master scheme right well going back to what you did with four seasons and just remembering all those that you did i mean you helped them redefine fine dining or luxury dining for their brand which was exciting i think at that time i mean you really you you all were on the forefront of what does it mean to be a hotel restaurant and i think you kind of threw out the rule book a bit absolutely and and they hired me to come and talk to their food and beverage people and their uh, chefs many times and run trainings about, I came up with a, a training called think like a restaurateur, not a hotelier, because we started realizing hoteliers are awesome, especially at that super luxury level. They're just super accommodating anything you want. We will make it happen for you. Right. And yet restaurateurs are entertaining. It's like, this is our point of view. They like it or not. And Wolfgang and I even did one together where he talked about, you know, why does he play like 70s rock super loud at cut, which most people consider to be an upscale experience. And yet they've got 
you know, guys in t-shirts and, and, you know, loud rock music going. He's like, because I like it. <laughs> and then you know, if you don't like it, you have to go somewhere else. Yeah. It's like, you know, hotels, you know, just, you know, obviously don't want to do that. But then when they carry that philosophy into the restaurant, then the restaurant really has no personality. It's just whatever, they're just a mirror to whatever right. the customer wants. And so we really had to train them that, you know, you have to hire different people. You have to yep. do everything differently in the restaurant. It has yeah. to have a point of view or it's nothing. I love that. And I mean, I think it's amazing that Andas, and we were talking about Andas Scottsdale, right? For the first mm-hmm. hotel rooms. Yeah. Um, that they allowed you to do or gave you the opportunity to give to do the guest rooms because I feel like sometimes it's hard to make that transition. I mean, yes, FMB and public spaces make sense, but to switch over. Um, and that was such a special property. Can you talk a little bit about that property in Scottsdale? Yeah, I mean, it was a really good place for us to learn. A, the client was extremely hands-on and, uh, you know, probably, you know, <laughs> maybe too hands-on for the folks at Hyatt, but uh, it, he's very hands-on and um, and we really created a friendship and a, you know, liaison where I was learning and he didn't mind teaching me as we went. And, uh, and that was great. And it, it was almost, I'd say, a little bit like the Eric relationship. They, we, he trusted me completely and he really respected my point of view. And I just was not afraid to say, I really don't know the answer to that. I've never done this, you know, right. hope that doesn't freak you out. And he's like, no, I know how to do this a hundred times over. But what I don't know how to do is what you do. So I will tell you when you're doing something wrong and then you just do what you do. And it was a safe space to be able to experiment. And um, I think the nature of that hotel was not a tower. It was bungalow style, independent spaces that um, certainly we didn't have to get into corridors and all the things that we would learn later, <laughs> the painful <laughs> way on other projects. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a fantastic. It's still one of my favorite. We're working with them right now on kind of rebranding and bringing a whole new kind of voice post pandemic to the mm. property. And, uh, it's just sort of a property that's kind of like in the family, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Have there been any other projects that you would say you learned a lot from or were challenging in a good way? I mean, every project's like that. I, you guys have, I sent me these questions and I was just like, kept me up all night going, what is my big problem project? <laughs> I don't have, <laughs> I don't, I just, it's, it's just because I just don't see things, even if they're problematic, I don't view them that way. So it's hard for me to categorize things that way. Yeah. Um, because everything to me is a learning opportunity. And, uh, you know, the biggest problems we ever have are more related to personality conflicts or, or, or you know, certainly we learned the hard way about the pace. I mean, we, we kind of raised ourselves on restaurants, which happens so fast. Right. And the pace is just, you know, super, super quick. And we're all adapted to that. And, and actually, I think it goes along with my personality. I like moving that fast. I don't like sitting in one place for very long. I like traveling. I like doing all that kind of thing. It suits me. So projects that take like six years to realize are very hard for us to do. So we just right. finished the montage in Healdsburg. Oh, wow. And uh, it's going to be fantastic. I can't wait to share it with you. And um, that's taken six years or maybe more. And um, that's hard for us just because our whole like culture is more about doing things quickly. And so to try to design something that's not going to be open for six years and kind of think through all the steps to take was a big learning curve for us. 
Um, so that was, I think, the second hotel, whole hotel that we started. And we've done tons of renovations now in between that have come and gone way before that opened. Right. Um, so in the course of that project, you know, between, you know, starting it and ending it, we've learned a lot about hospitality and it hasn't always been easy on that job. It looks beautiful from the photos. I mean, just the openness and the natural materials and that site, it looks beautiful. It's an amazing site. It's a great team, a great the client and the developer were, you know, really visionary on how to do that project. And when we interviewed for that project, I said, you know, we, you know, we don't have the most hotel experience. I mean, we're, we're finishing up the Andas. That's our first and only hotel that we've done. And he said, that's a good thing. We're looking for fresh ideas. I'm like, okay, well, we got plenty of those. Yeah. See which one sticks. Yeah. Um, no, I love it. And then is there one project then that you consider, I mean, would the Andas be then kind of your big break of, you know, trying a full hotel or was there a restaurant along the way besides Wolfgang, I guess? I'd say the, the pivotal projects for me would be that Spago in Maui because that led to so many relationships that just sort of domino effect. Right. Um, and then the Anda is definitely pivotal for the same reason in more specifically with hotels. And, um, and, and in both cases, great client relationships that, you know, are still friends today and, and really, you know, helped shape me as a professional, um, you know, in, in ways, you know, that were not so project specific, but just in life, you know, right. learning and this business, learning how to be a professional in this world and um, things like that. How, what do you think makes for a successful collaboration? You know, is that communication? Is that mutual respect? Is that knowing each other's lanes? Is that all of the above? Pretty much all of the above. I mean, I think you nailed the first thing I would say for sure is having mutual respect and you know, I think that's one thing I try to teach my team is that we have to honor the business goals because that's, these are business, you know, investments. It's not, it's very different than when you're doing someone's custom home. Right. So, and, and quite honestly, I struggled with that. So when you're doing someone's custom home and, you know, some people have a very tight budget, some people have none, but in the end, all the decisions are um, personal and there's no reason for anything um, in the sense that it's not, um, it's not financial. Uh, you know, it's just like, I like that. I don't like that. I love this. And then I'm like, you know, I, I have a hard time tagging in with that. When I started doing hospitality, I'm like, that. I think behind this, this is like purposeful design that's, you know, a, about a reason and a story. And uh, I can relate to that. I have to say it is one of my... Um, I'm surprised, honestly, in this industry, how few designers actually care about the client's budgets and and business needs. Um, I think it's a little bit of a black eye for us because you, you, so many times we encounter people that either don't want to share our budgets because we don't, they don't think we're going to respect them. Um, And I'm like, look, you have to be honest with me and share that stuff with me because I can never, I will definitely exceed the budget if you don't give it to me. Right. If there's no um, budget, you know, <laughs> yeah, there's no budget, it's going up. Yeah. And uh, so if you want us to hit it and then let me have it. And, but they, a lot of people have been burned, you know, and, and I, you know, it's, uh, I just tell my people, we're not going to be those people. I mean, we're going to respect the budget and do everything we can. And of course 
the first thing we're going to do is make sure it's real and possible. And I'll be the first to tell, to tell somebody like this number is way too low. You're never right. going to be able to do what you want to do for this money. And I'm, I'm not telling you that because I want you to spend more. I'm telling you that because you told me what you wanted in the end. Right. And if you want that, you're not going to get that with this. And I think people trust you when you're honest. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then they start letting you advise them more responsibly. Right. And you said that's one of the things you try to teach your team. I mean, I think that's so important because there's so many creatives that don't understand the full business aspect of, you know, the hotel business. Um, So is that, besides that, what else are you trying to pass on to your team or, you know, pass on some of the wisdom that you've learned along the way? Yeah, definitely working. We, we developed a system we call the five easy pieces where we take the budget and break it down. So we start with our fee because that's already been established. And then FF&E is easier sort of to quantify. My team starts doing budgets like the first week that we start a project. It's like before we even get carried away, let's just break this down right. so we know where we're heading. And then um, we'll have the GC cost. And then the, usually we have some kind of equipment cost. And then we also c- create a category for owner. Because so many times the owners have come to us like late in the game and be like, well, we need money for OS&E. I'm like, well, I just assumed you had already taken your part of the budget. We've spent all the rest of this money. Um, so I'm always like, you've got a seat at the budget table. Like that's your part. You can't go past that unless we all agree that you, you have to. Um, you know, we're in this together. And everybody kind of respects that. My team likes that because it's broken down and now they can start compartmentalizing it. I mean, if someone says 25 million, you know, they think, wow, that's a lot of money. I don't know. Yeah, I can do anything. Right. It's like, no, once you start breaking down that 25 million, your part is not that big. Yeah, goes pretty fast. <laughs> it goes pretty fast. So I think that's all good. And then just getting context. Like we have projects that are, you know, we're doing a small little hotel for, um, you know, it's a really small group of investors and everybody's like, you know, that's different when it's personal money and it's someone's, you know, personal money versus remodeling a big Marriott for a REIT when no one, you know, really cares as much personally about it. It's just an investment. Um, So you have to understand the context and and try to learn where, what's the driving force behind here and people get frustrated why can't they care i'm like they care about a lot of things but they've paid us to care about that right you know so that's your role it must be fun to work for some of the smaller properties run by individuals right because it kind of brings you back to what hospitality is all about um and that's like welcoming yeah totally like that headlands project in oregon that we did a few years back i mean still i'm super good friends with them we're designing a brewery for them now but so fun. Never would I met them at hospitality design. Oh, nice. They saw me speak and then they talked to me and said, Oh, we need you. And we're just doing this 33 room hotel and Oregon's probably way too small for you. But I'm like, I don't know what, show me the pictures. We, we look, I'm like, Hey, we're doing that. Cause I want to go there. Yeah. And, uh, and now it's just been kind of life changing. Learned so much about hospitality from them. Just a cute little couple. that's just making it work. Yeah. And, uh, I just identify with them. I've learned more probably on that project than I have on many other projects that I've done um, because of that personal, you know, sharing of, of the, and these guys are like, they're my heroes. I mean, they have put their themselves on the line and 
and won big and then lost everything. They, they built their dream home and then they lost it in oh, the no. own that, that doesn't stop them. You know, they just get back up and go again. And when we first started working with them, I asked them, I said, so what does this look like? If this project is successful, what does that look like for you? And the guy looked at me and he like shook his head and then he got kind of like tears in his eyes. And he says, it looks like I can retire. Uh-huh. I'm like, awesome. No pressure at all on that. <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah, just a little <laughs> hotel that you're designing. <laughs> yeah, just, okay, we just got to get it where this guy can retire. And then Headlands was so successful and so much more successful than they ever thought. Now they, you know, they're doing another brew pub. They're building another hotel. They're doing that. So I'm like, you guys really are not good at retirement. That's all I can say. Yeah. Uh, this was supposed to be for you to retire and you're not doing that. Exactly. And he's like, yeah, it turns out we're not good at that. <laughs> so it's, and, and you know, they, I have to stop them sometimes. I'm like, don't spend that money. That's not, that's over your budget. And they, they're, you know, they're, they fall in love with ideas and they're like, don't you think we should do it? I'm like, no, no. What are you thinking? <laughs> and uh, it's, it's just been, it's been fun because I guess it's probably the closest that I could come to owning something being that close with, you know, friendly with folks that I can really understand, you know, the challenges that they've been through. That's amazing. Yeah. And uh, speaking of relationships, uh, you work and co-lead the, um, the firm with your husband, Patrick. Yes. So how does that, how did that all come about? Um, how did you two meet? Tell us the story. Well, I mean, he was working at EDG and both of us had been married before and were divorced. And, um, and we, we got along great. We got, but there was no romance or anything. And then it was a trip to New York, I think for a probably boutique or something like that. Eric was with us. The three of us had so much fun together always. And then just all of a sudden the, the light switched on for both of us on the same day. And I, I think like two days later, we were like, together forever and uh, it just kind of happened like that and you know I think if you've ever been married before and I'm super good friends with my ex-husband and we have a 22 year old kid together so it's not an acrimonious thing but you know it just didn't work and I, I could never do I could never be where I am right now in my career without making this switch um, you know, to be, to do this much and raise a kid and juggle and run a company and deal with all the ups and downs and that, you know, you got to have a partner that's got your back and, um, and gets what you're trying to do and, and gets what you're capable of even maybe before, you know, and I, I mean, I can't say how many times Patrick's been like, what are you talking about? You've already, you've done that 50 times, just go do it again. And, you know, just when you have doubts, you need someone to talk you off the ledge or, remind you of what you're capable of. And, and he does that, we're, you know, we're, we're together. Literally, I can say now after COVID we're together nonstop <laughs> and people can't believe it. They're like, you're, you sit right next to each other at work. You're together all the time. And yet you still go to lunch together every day. I mean, we're just like, we enjoy each other's company. That's amazing. And how does it work in the office? What do you, how do you separate responsibilities? Cause I'm sure that's part of it. Yeah. Patrick is good at doing all the boring stuff. <laughs> no, he really That's amazing. <laughs> he's got a journalism undergrad. And so he writes all the proposals. He's also like by nature, he's really cautious and he's more like, um, 
don't know. He's like, uh, what, what do you call it when someone always plays devil's advocate? You know, like, because I'm always yeah. like, yes, let's do it. Let's go. Impulse, impulse. And he's like, well, or, you know, and I'm like, or what? No, let's go. And, and so he's, he's much better at looking at contracts and proposals and developing business. And, and um, I'm more leading the design charge. So mm-hmm. I'm working with the teams. He does a lot of um, strategic planning and master planning and things like that with, the, with clients also. We both share those responsibilities. But then when it comes to leading the design teams and editing and guiding them, um, that falls to me. Got it. Yeah. Well, it seems like separation of church and state a little bit. So that probably makes it a little oh, bit easier. It's ideal. It's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. So when you're designing a project, what do you think is your favorite part of it? Or what part of the process gets you still the most excited? For sure. Without a doubt, without even thinking twice about it, it's the strategy. It's the setting up the structure of the project, really. And I think that's why... I really was interested in, in adding the branding dimension too, because I was like, I'm have, I want to have fun like that too, you know? And, and I think that like getting the narrative, right. Getting the, the reasons to be lined up because it helps the design have a structure. And, you know, even when I meet with my design teams, I'm like, let's get back to the purpose. Let's get back to the DNA. What are we trying to do here? And it helps solve all the little decisions that you have to make. Right. Um, about how to make it great is if it has a story, if it right. if it's got a strong narrative. And um, I definitely, you know, it, people are always asking, what would you be if you weren't an architect? I'm like, probably, um, who knows what I would be, maybe uh, a restaurateur or a developer or something. But, you know, I could also see myself doing uh, being a lawyer because I like building a case, you know, <laughs> and I like kind of proving it. Um, and I think that's, you know, I'm not the one that goes and like innovates all the great design that comes out of our studio. I lead people to those decisions and then I fan the flame when they get going and that's my job. So when I hire people, I'm like, if you're thinking I'm going to do all the design and you're just going to work for me, that's not how it's going to work. I'm hiring you because you're talented and you're going to do design but it's going to be purposeful. I'm going to get you on the right road. And then I'm going to give you feedback so that we win. And the project's great and the clients love it. That's my job. Editing, yeah. guiding. Yeah. So, you know, my heroes are people, you know, I certainly admire designers that are just fantastic. But my personal heroes are more people like Margaret McMahon or people like that, that do the same thing that run great firms and lead great teams and help other people be great. This is what I'm always looking for advice on how to help other people be great. How, how, how has being or the definition of leadership changed over the past year for you? Wow. I mean, how many Zoom calls can you have in one day is the question. (laughs) It's, you know, how to try to, Mm -hmm. you know, elevate the mood. And, and, you know, when you're just looking at your face on screen all day long, um, you know, how can you be innovative? And we've, we've really, a lot of things have gotten better. Honestly, like really having face-to-face communication with your team does actually make you closer. Yeah. And, you know, so many times we realize we've all been in the same room, but we weren't actually looking at each other, no. you know? 
Yeah. And, and sometimes we also weren't looking at the same piece of paper. And so really just looking on screen, you're really able to micro dissect what you're really looking at. So I think there's some things we've learned that we'll probably keep doing. But the thing I miss the most is just the energy of being connected. Um, and it, that is hard to replicate. It, I have a fantastic assistant who's been with me for, I think, 20 years, almost 20 years. And she uh, does these weekly meetings that we have and really tries to be creative and make them fun. And I say she does the best job anyone could possibly do about that. But it's hard. It's hard to stay connected. And when you hang up and now you're in your own space and you're not with anybody anymore. Um, we're very, very, very collegial firm. Um, very, you know, we have a fun kind of thing. We have a huge kitchen in our office and we make meals together and stuff like that. So it's been hard to be so, so separate. Yeah. No, for sure. And how are you staying inspired through all of this? I mean, I know the ups and downs and openings and closings and, you know, I couldn't even imagine running a business with 60 plus people and worrying about, you know, day to day, you know, how are you staying inspired? How are you staying, you know, head above water even uh, yeah. with everything going on? It helps on. to have Patrick and I, I mean, it helps that we're a team right? just because that dynamic has just stayed super strong and we're here together. We live in a beautiful place. We, 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 you know, we can go hiking five minutes walk and I'm hiking up in the hills um, from our house. So that's great. I love being in nature and hiking gives me perspective to be able to be like, whatever it is, we'll get back on the ground and it'll all be fine. Um, but it's hard not traveling because traveling was always one of my biggest inspirations. And, um, you know, so we're reading, watching a lot of, you know, shows about travel and, and, you know, doing things like that and cooking a ton. I mean, challenging ourselves to get out of the box and make things that we don't normally make. I mean, Patrick, I can, he's like, just crazy on, on this cooking thing. He's a man of many talents. I feel he really is. He started making sourdough bread, which a lot of people did, but I, I have no interest in that. See, that's like way too many steps for me. Yeah. I like winging it. Yeah. And he likes checking. Yeah, I know <laughs> what we're He's learning here. Yeah. <laughs> I can wing it. I can look in the fridge and be like, I know what I'm doing. And he's like, how can you possibly, what do you see? And then he likes to make a recipe. So he's like an executor. You know, I'll make amazing. I'll make Gordon Ramsay's Beef Wellington, you know, and do it perfectly. Whereas I will mess that up because I'll try to improvise. Yeah. So we're opposites. But it's it, it's been fun cooking more uh, experimentally. Yeah. I love it. But, uh, you know, even during COVID time, this past year, 2020, we had 11 projects open. That's crazy. So I know it's crazy. So we all had hotels two, or a mix of hotels and restaurants, a mix of hotels and restaurants and kind of other things. I mean, we designed with two viceroys renovations that opened um, a renovation to a, a hotel in, in Virginia. We did a new glamping brand for KOA uh, that cool. opened. Uh, it's called Terramore. And, um, just so so many things and so it was it was hard to try to figure out how to get these things open when you couldn't do site visits so zoom right. you know site walks became really popular 
Um, but we did sneak to a bunch of those sites, uh, you know, during the different breaks uh, during COVID and saw those. So it was it was a busy year in, in that regard. You know, okay. and, and then, of course, they open and there's no one can come. Right. Um, yeah. So but I feel like there's always that we, layer you need to do once it opens. Right. So maybe letting uh, it live for a couple of months on em- uh, empty is not a terrible thing because then you can, you know, see it. It's true. And and it's it's kind of all starting to happen now, especially in California here, because we've really been so locked down. Not nothing really has been able to open. Um to the public. So everything's kind of starting now to, to get out of the deep freeze. Right. Um, so it, it'll be, it'll be a busy spring from that standpoint. Yeah. The light at the end of the tunnel, hopefully. Okay. So you're doing glamping, you know, lots of different hotels, restaurants. What, what are you seeing uh, in terms of where the hospitality industry is headed? What, what are you paying attention to? I mean, everyone keeps asking like, what's going to change because of COVID. And, you know, I don't know if it's because of COVID or the changing world, you know, but I do think some things will stick and some things will go back to normal, but I don't know what, what you're seeing, what you're thinking. I mean, my, I guess I'm just an optimistic person and I'm also a big believer in the power and the desire for everybody to be social. I I think eventually things will go back to just where they were. Yeah. I think people just love restaurants. They love being socializing. They love design. They love being in spaces. I just think we saw a little bit of this dot com thing here in the Bay Area when everyone was like, no one's ever going to work in an office again. And then, you know, five years later, we go through the period of the most extravagant offices ever built for tech companies. So I think, you know, it's just a phase. I think that the thing that will change is that people, now realize it's a little less crucial to be everywhere in person. Um, so I think we're certainly going to be entertaining working from home more, you know, not always, but right. it, it's not going to be like bizarre for someone to choose to work from home semi-regularly. Um, I think conferences are going to have to change. I think there's going to be a certain component of people that isn't going to want to travel in the short term. And, and also, a lot of people kind of got like off the addiction of, of the, the, the crazy travel schedules that a lot of us have and the advantages of not having to travel like that. And so to be able to say, I can't be there because I literally can't. And now saying, I'm choosing not to be there. I'm going to do a video or a Zoom instead. People kind of can't say what, you know, now they're going to have to say, yeah, I mean, that's reasonable. That, that's okay. And it right. won't still work so it'd be interesting to see how that plays out and um, i think uh you know definitely outdoor environments i don't think you'll ever go back to having a meeting in a room with no windows again if you can avoid it um so i think hotels are really gonna have to reinvent those dungeony spaces that nobody is really ever going to want to be in right you know i think uh it's going to be really challenging for urban hotels um because of that. So I think, you know, rooftops are going to be more important and, and really getting creative that way. We're seeing and are working on several hybrid projects that are combination residential and hotel, um, whether they're short-term stay or pure hospitality hotel um, combined in a residential environment. Um, I think that's going to be big, actually, especially in these urban places. And there's be a lot of hotels that, don't ever need to go back to 400 room hotels. Right. 
So, you know, there's going to be some hybrids that get, that get uh, born out of this situation. A hundred percent, especially as people learn to live and travel and work differently. I mean, I think it yeah. makes complete sense. And I think too, a lot of this was happening, right? You know, you saw restaurants, you know, become one with lobbies and you, be, you know, you saw them bleed outside. And, you know, like, I think a lot of this was happening before. This has just accelerated a lot of what I think that this just hit the gas and gave it, yep. it is no longer optional. Right. Yep. I'm hoping that also that what becomes no longer optional is more focused on sustainability um, because the, the hospitality industry has really been pretty bad at accepting sustainability as a mandate. Right. It's really been more of like, if we can afford it, we'll do that, you know, and then of course they can't. Um, so I, I hope that they can start adopting more, um, you know, yep. more focus on that. And some of the biophilic aspects of what people prefer in regards to more of an outdoor space or more fresh air, things like that can start, influencing design and bringing sustainability and maybe more from the factor of preference rather than kind of an eco mandate. Right. But however it happens, it would be great if it, if it could happen. Exactly. I a hundred percent agree. And I think too, just wellness in general, which goes hand in hand with sustainability. Um, I mean, just looking at how the pandemic has brought to life the importance of the building you're in and, you know, what's around you and how much that affects your health. Totally. I mean, I can't tell you how many people we've talked to that are just making like life, big life changes because of the um, introspection that this situation has brought to them. And, you know, I think obviously a lot of people are suffering, you know, pretty greatly during this. Um, and those of us fortunate enough to not be suffering um, are still impacted and being able to look at what's the positive impact of the change that I've been experiencing um, is something that we focus on a lot. I'd yeah. say almost at least, at least every couple of days on our nightly dog walks, it's like, okay, what are we going to make positive out of this experience? How are we going to turn? What do we want to retain? Because partly sometimes you start thinking, oh, now that everything's going to start picking back up. And then I don't want to let go of some of these things that have happened. What are those things we want to keep? Yeah. I was saying that to my husband, like I'm almost a little sad. I mean, obviously, <laughs> I'm not sad that, you know, we're getting out of a pandemic, but I'm almost, almost sad as some of these moments that won't exist anymore or X, yeah. Y, and Z because you've gotten so accustomed to them. And, um, you know, there are silver linings through all pan all craziness, all, you know, yeah. all downturns. So, you know, exactly. What are you holding on to? Exactly. So it's, I think it's, it's going to be interesting to, to see what collectively. Yeah. We hold on to come back with. Yeah. Oh, I love this. I don't want to end, but we always end with one question and that's the title of our podcast. So Jennifer, what has been your greatest lesson learned? My greatest lesson learned, you know, I just think, you know, for me, it's just like living kind of boldly, like really just getting out there and putting yourself out there and being open, you know, yep. open to what, you, people say open to what influences you hear listening and and just getting yourself out there and yeah. um you know i think i did learn that from eric and i uh, i've tried to follow that and promote my team to do that and just get out there and live boldly yep 
I love it. Well, thank you for spending this time with us. It was so good to, uh, to see you in person and hear your story. And um, we're excited to honor you in November, November 12th for platinum circle. So I am so excited. I am super honored and, uh, you know, really looking forward to it. Well, we can't wait. So, and you're so deserving, but thank you for the time and uh, we'll be in touch soon. Sounds good. Thanks for listening to Hospitality Designs, What I've Learned. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find full episodes and transcripts at hospitalitydesign.com.